0: You can turn over to Matthew chapter 5. And uh, before our communion time this morning, we're going to continue to forge ahead in the book of Matthew. Just a way of kind of review. Remember, last week we looked at how God's love not only permeates the New Testament, but it also covers the Old Testament. As well it actually starts in the Old Testament, and so many times our thinking, as far as the law is concerned well that 's the Old Testament, and you know they live by different standard and, and all this stuff and We found out last week that really um, God has his um, issue in the heart of man. and he he always desires to know uh, what 's in our heart, and it 's not so much what we 're performing for him but what 's going on inside of us, and so he kind of uh, we looked at that last week and how uh, the Ten Commandments even are kind of a, a response of um, God's love for us. And we went through and we listed those, and you can uh, follow up with that if you weren't here last week. But Jesus gives a message here in Matthew 5, beginning in, in verse 21, and he begins to go through a series of issues uh, in that they had in that day, and we have today. first one being murder, and we covered that a couple of weeks ago, and now we come to verse 27 in our text, and it talks about um, the issue of adultery. And I just want to read our text for us in Matthew 5, 27 to 30, and then we'll walk through it together. It says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall... "...not commit adultery. But I say to you that whosoever looks on a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than your whole body be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you, for it is more profitable for one of your members to perish than your whole body be cast into hell." You stop and you say, that sounds kind of harsh. And we're going to look at what Jesus meant by all that. But in in Numbers 32, verse 23, the Word of God says, Be sure that your sin will what? Find you out. Okay? And here we have these Jewish leaders who thought themselves to be so, um, you know, pious and so religious because they kept all these external trappings of their religion and they kept it to the T. They, they kept every little thing, you know, in their mind. They thought they were doing what was honoring to God. And, and really all they were doing was building up their own uh, self-esteem and their self-righteousness, you might say. Uh, and so Jesus begins to unmask their hypocrisy. And he begins with the issue of murder, and then he moves on to adultery. And we talked about murder, and we said, well, th- they were looking at it as if they didn't, never went out and just cold-bloodly murdered somebody, then they're okay. And Jesus said, no, 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 no. If you're even angry at somebody in your heart, you've already committed murder. Well, the same principle applies here. He begins to look at these gentlemen, and he says, you know, you've heard it said of old, you should not commit adultery. And they're probably, their chefs are puffed out, and they're probably thinking, yeah, we wouldn't do something like that. You know, what do you think we are? And then he says, wait, if you've lusted for a woman in your heart, you've already committed adultery. Uh, What a hard teaching that is. But it it teaches us and it kind of unveils their hypocrisy. What he's doing is he's taking back the curtain and he's saying, yeah, on the outside, we all look put together pretty well. But inside, what's going on inside? That's what God is concerned with. And when they peeled that curtain back, uh, I'm sure these religious leaders weren't very happy to see what Jesus exposed to them nor are we when God peels the curtain back of our heart and we see something within us that is, is dark and evil and bad and, and not honoring to God, and we're saying, man, how could this be? Um, and we want to kind of fix it ourselves sometimes. But God says, no, you, you have to let me fix it for you. And the, the Jews of Jesus' day had substituted their external religion for what Christ and what God originally intended through the law. So they come up with their own list of do's and don'ts that they could keep very easily and said, hey, we feel good about ourselves as a result of that. And so Matthew had, or Jesus had to raise the standard in Matthew. And in Matthew 5, 48, he says, uh, you should be perfect, therefore, even as your Father who is in heaven is perfect. I mean, talk about a high standard. Uh, think about that. Demanding a righteousness for his kingdom that was far above, exceeded their own righteousness. It kind of, you know, forced them to look at themselves and say, wait a minute, if we have to be perfect, who can be saved? What are you talking about? Nobody measures up. Exactly. That's the idea. He begins to accomplish this whole thing and he begins to help them see a need for a savior. And he walked through the whole thing with them. Now... He begins in the Sermon on the Mount, back in verse 3 of chapter 5, and he began talking, remember, when we went through the the Beatitudes, about uh, the blessedness. Blessed are those, blessed are those, and it goes through the whole list of them there. And now his listeners, for them to understand this blessing that God was trying to communicate to them through Christ, he said, first of all, you have to understand sin. You know, you have to understand where you are before God, if you're ever going to understand the blessing of God in your life, if you think you're just self-righteous and you just think that you're all put together and you think that you're something and all by yourself and you go out every day and do your own thing. And, you know, well, where's God come into that? And so you're saying, yeah, I'm blessed, but I'm blessed because of who I am. I study hard. I work hard, do all this stuff. And so, you know, and, and God doesn't want us to understand his blessing that way for us first to understand the aspect of God's blessing. I really think we have to grapple with the issue of sin. We have to understand a proper understanding of sin. And unless we understand the truth about sin, we can never understand the truth about what God says concerning salvation. See, and unfortunately today, when we share the gospel with people a lot of times, we have a lot of people that say, well, here's how you need to do it and all this stuff. And it shortchanges that. It kind of goes around that. There are churches today that don't mention sin. They don't use that word. Because it's offensive to people. They don't talk about the blood of Christ. They don't talk about the death of Christ. They don't talk about any of that stuff. It's a very social gospel. It's a gospel to make people feel good about themselves. Very Build up their self-esteem. You know, All you have to do is turn on Joel Osteen every week and hear what the guy says. Is he a good speaker? Yes, he's an excellent communicator. You know, I've watched him. But what's the substance of his message? The substance of his message is, Hey, I want you to feel good about yourself. And God's saying, No. I don't want you to feel good about yourself. I want you to understand that you're utterly desperate for a Savior in your life. And see, we have to stop and we have to remember that unless we understand the relationship between sin and salvation, I don't think somebody can really be saved unless they understand what God's view of sin is. And these old... These folks here, these scribes and these Pharisees, their view of salvation was simply a matter of what they did, or their view of sin was what they did. They looked at it on the outside and they said, "Well, he's talking about murder. We never killed anybody, so therefore we never sin. Or we don't commit adultery physically, you know, with you know, physically with another person. So therefore, we're okay in that area." And so, what salvation became to them? was a matter of what they did, because that's what, in their mind, sin was. And so many times, that's what we do as Christians. We look at our lives, and we feel pretty good about ourselves, and we're doing this and doing that, and God's saying, but wait, where's your heart? I'm not just concerned about what you do on the outside. And so, what happens today is church minimizes the definition of sin. And because they minimize sin, therefore, they minimize salvation right alongside of it. If people see sin as a deep problem down in their heart, they would would begin to understand, you know what, I can't do anything about this. This isn't something that I can just wake up and say, okay, I'm going to give myself a new heart. I'm going to change my heart. I'm going to save myself somehow. It doesn't work that way. And so when we begin to comprehend how horrible our sin is before a holy God, we begin to understand that, hey, there's no way other than coming through the cross of Christ for salvation. There's a, it's, a, it's a deeper disease than just a superficial thing. And there's a greater need for a remedy. I remember when I, I went to the doctor for a little thing on my arm, my forearm. It was just a scab. It just kept on, you know, wouldn't heal up. So I was in at the doctor for a yearly thing and said, hey, you know, I just wonder what this is, you know. It just doesn't heal. It's been on for like six months. Oh, well, it looks like, I don't know, it could be something. We could just freeze it here or we could send you to a dermatologist or whatever. I said, well, I'll go to a dermatologist. I don't care. I figure I'm paying $700 a month for health care. I'm going to get everything I can out of these people. So, you know, send me to the dermatologist, you know. I mean, do you ever go to the doctor's office and you just feel like when you're sitting there waiting, and, you, you know, what I do is I sit there and I think, man, you know, here I am in this doctor's office. I pay over $700 a month for health insurance here at Kaiser, and, and, and I'm just sitting here waiting. I wonder how much one of these cotton balls costs this doctor. You know, and you start beginning to kind of scheme in your mind. I mean, you know, really, that's my, my cotton. That's my Q-tip. That's, you know, and you just get to hoard all this stuff. You know, you just want to stuff it all in your pockets and walk out and go, yeah, I got something for my money today. I mean, I don't do that, but it's in my mind. Okay. So when they offered, hey, you want to go see a special? Hey, go send me. Yeah, I'll go. So I go to the dermatologist. Hey, what's this thing on my arm? I go through the whole routine. And, and she says, well, will take your shirt off. And, you know, and she goes, or she goes, do you have anything else? I said, well, I got this thing on my collarbone. She goes, well, take your shirt off. So she took my shirt off. And she didn't even look at that. She goes, what's this thing on your back? I'm thinking, I don't know, i has been there since I was a teenager, you know. Oh, that doesn't look good, can we take a biopsy, you know? Well, it ended up being this weird kind of cancer that I got taken care of and everything. But, you know, I just didn't walk in there saying, you know, I walked in there with the, it's just something superficial, just freeze the thing and we'll be done with it, you know. And, but it was, it was an outward kind of a, a, a sign there of an inward, something deeper in my system that was awry. And so they had to go in and take this cyst out of my back. Well, once that was done, okay, then there wasn't, you know, I wasn't, you know, pining away about this thing. After that, I figured, hey, it's done. It's done. And it is. I've been back once since then, and they said there's no need to really follow up with this. And if you see something growing on your back, hopefully you'll figure it out and come back. So I thought, okay, that sounds good to me. But, see, sometimes we look at sin in people's lives, and we minimize it to just this little scrape. Don't worry about it. And so they, they feel okay about it. So they just live with it. See, And they never go and find out what God has to say about it. And so when you go to the specialist, God, he says, no, it's not just a little scrape on your arm. There's something way wrong deep inside your body system that I need to kind of dig out. I have to take this thing out of you. okay?" And, and that's what we have to remember is that we can't minimize our view of sin because if we do that, we minimize our need of salvation. The same way, if the doctor told you you had cancer and you said, "Ah, it's no big deal. I'm not going to go back. I don't care. Whatever," all right? Well, you'd be minimizing something, but you wouldn't be helping yourself, all right? And so, there's that relationship between sin and salvation, and you have to remember when you go through, you know, um, even even the book of Romans. I mean, it talks about how deeply sin is entrenched in our lives, and that should not drive us into this utter despair. If we're, 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 we're Christians, we should praise him because he saved us out of that. But if we're not a Christian, we should be in despair over our sin. Because there is no way out of it other than the forgiveness of Christ. And then you stop and you look at how that affects your sin, how that affects you reaching out and, and evangelizing people. And today we have a lot of, kind of what you call superficial approaches to evangelism. You know, some people call it easy believism. Some people call it cheap grace, whatever you want to call it. And basically, it's a very needs felt kind of message. You know, come to church and Jesus will meet all your needs and you'll feel better about yourself and, you know, all this stuff. And if you have all these issues, well, you know, Jesus will just take all those issues away and you'll just be happy as, you know, uh, as can be. And so, you know, why don't you just accept Jesus and he'll make your life a happy life? Don't you you want to go to heaven? What's wrong with you? You And so who wouldn't answer that kind of a thing? Who wouldn't answer that kind of a uh, presentation of the gospel affirming what you're saying to them? God has a wonderful plan for your life. Okay, well, sure, yeah, I want to know that. And so we have to be careful sometimes how we share it because Scripture does just the opposite. It doesn't just give us all the icing on the cake first. It says, hey, wait a minute, no. (laughs) You have to understand who you are before You receive the blessing of salvation. You have to understand that outside of Christ, our hearts are wicked and desperate. Okay, When you read through the book of Romans, basically chapters 1, 2, and 3, what does Paul do? He condemns, he condemns, he condemns over and over and over again. He talks about the wrath of God against those of us who have sinned against a holy God and all that stuff. And then finally, he comes to the good news about the righteousness of Christ that's available to us through him. And so we have to remember that that our salvation message that we share with people isn't just all glittery, you know, happy, happy Jesus kind of message. Um, It has to contain some form of the issue of sin. We have to talk about people's sin. We have to talk about, you know what, you've sinned before a holy God. What are you going to do about that? They have to understand that before they can ever get saved. Why would you get saved if you didn't think there was a need for a savior? And so we have people kind of rushing into churches and they're hearing these feel-good messages and that's all fine and dandy and the church is full and everybody's, you know, just happy, happy, happy. But probably three-quarters of the church is quickly on their way to hell and nobody's telling them. Nobody's stopping and saying, wait a minute. It's not just a feel-good gospel. It's a gospel that convicts hearts of sin and we want to make men desperate, like Jesus wanted to make the Pharisees and the scribes and the multitude that were sitting there on the hill listening to him, he wanted them to fear God's judgment because of their sin. And he wanted them to get to a point where they cried out, a heartfelt cry out to God for a Savior. And he can deliver them from that at that point. But before that, if there's no repentance, if there's no turning away from your sin to God, then there's no salvation. It just doesn't work that way. So evangelism and the proclamation of the gospel should really start with what? It should start talking with the holiness of God. That's where we have to start. Because unless somebody knows that God is holy, why would they need to understand their own sinfulness? Why would they understand the need of a savior? They wouldn't. So you have that dynamic between sin and how we share our faith. And it even goes to the extent of Having the proper perspective on sin even affects how we look at our sanctification or how God makes us holier and holy, how he sets us apart each day onto Christ. See, if we don't fully appreciate where we've come from as believers, if we don't fully appreciate what the sin was that God saved us out of, then we're really not going to appreciate him working in our lives to make us more like his son each and every day. And so basically, then all of a sudden, it's going to boil down to well, now I'm a Christian, and basically, what that means to me is I go to church on Sundays. Maybe I'm in a group, and you know I pray before I eat, even at a restaurant. Um, you know I, I uh, you know, kind of pray for people. I'll, I'll do this, I'll do that. I don't go to bars. I don't go to uh, you know R-rated movies or whatever. I mean, you can come up with a myriad list of things that somehow we associate with God sanctifying us, and God is saying, no, you got it all backwards. What's wrong with your heart? I want to start with the heart. That's what God is saying. And so we can't really thank God and praise him for the transformation that's been made in our life if we don't know and don't understand completely where and what we've been transformed from. A good test is when you're sharing your faith with somebody, ask somebody, when did you come to the realization of your need for a Savior? Same thing is, I mean, you know, sometimes we say, well, how long have you been a Christian? But when did you come to your realization that you had a need for a Savior? That's a good question. If they say, oh, all my life. that's like, how long have you been a Christian? I've been a Christian all my life. They don't have a proper understanding of what salvation is. Okay, they don't have a proper understanding now I'm not saying you have to have time and date, yeah, you know, on July fourth, whatever, you know. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying there should be some evidence in your life that somewhere along the line that a commitment to Christ was made. And He's renewing that commitment all the time, and you're seeing Him work in your lives, and you see that sanctifying process going on. And that's what we're talking about. It's God working in us, making us more and more like Christ. It's not just us putting on a list of do's and don'ts and, and looking good for everybody. In Proverbs 23, 7, Jesus was concerned, or God was concerned with the heart, and he says this in Proverbs 23, 7, he says, For as he thinks in his heart, so he is. In other words, God is divinely evaluating our lives not based on what we do. Should we be doing things? Definitely. I don't believe in a salvation that says, okay, now I'm saved, now I'm just going to sit back in the armchairs of grace and just let everything go to pot. That's not what salvation is, because God has prepared beforehand good works for us to do once we're saved, and when we're doing those good works, we see God evidenced in our life as a result of that. But he's also saying, you know what? I mean, that's great if you're doing those things, but what is your heart like? In Matthew 15, 16-19, Jesus said... Are you not without understanding? Do you not understand yet uh, that whoever or whatsoever enters, a, enters in at the mouth, goes into the stomach, and is, is, is cast out in the process of elimination? But those things which proceed out of the mouth come from where? Come from the heart. And they defile a man. For out of the heart proceeds thoughts, evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thieves, false witnesses, blasphemies. Where do all those things start? They start in the heart. They don't start just because you're doing a list of things. Before you ever commit murder, before you ever commit adultery or fornication or stealing or whatever, you think about it in your heart. You don't just wake up one day and say, I think I'll go kill somebody. You just don't do that. Or I think I'll go cheat on my wife, or I think I'll go do this, or I think I'll go do that. You don't just wake up and do that one day. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things. Above everything, it says. And it's desperately wicked. In other words, it's bent toward wickedness. That's our heart. And he says, who can know it? How many times have you looked at somebody and said, Well, you know, the guy's a little odd, but he's got a good heart. No, he doesn't. He doesn't have a good heart. None of us have a good heart. That's the whole problem. We all need heart surgery. You know, it's funny. I mean, you know, once in a while I get these, and don't get excited, but I get these cramps in my chest, okay? (laughs) They're over my heart. And it's just kind of odd. I mean, it makes it hard to breathe and everything, but it's not a heart attack I've already had it checked out. They said it's just some weird crampy thing muscles in the heart are doing but it concerns my wife, and sometimes it even <laughs> concerns me that this goes on. But, you know, it, it's, it's weird that, you know, you can go to a doctor, and they'll say, well, you know, that's nothing. You're feeling this, but don't, you know, it's not, it's not that big of a deal. Blood pressure, everything's great, okay? And and yet, so many times when we look at, at the heart, and we, when we come to understand that it's deceitful above all things, it's desperately wicked, It's we need a heart transplant. Okay, that's what we need. One gentleman, we were... Praying for Pastor Westgate made an incredible recovery. He had a heart transplant, literally. I mean, they went in, took his heart out, put somebody else's heart in. And as a matter of fact, he's just leaving California for three months this summer to go back to the church that he was at where I was at in our hometown, the one where I did my brother's funeral, actually, because that pastor left and they needed an interim pastor. And so he's physically capable to do that. And so he's going to go back there and be the interim pastor for for three months. And he's retired and everything until they find a new pastor. They can continue to pray for him and his wife, uh, Sandy, as they travel back there in a couple weeks. But the heart is something that we don't know. And what God is doing and what Jesus is doing here before the Pharisees, he's kind of pulling back the curtain and he's saying, hey, you, you think you got it together? No, you don't. Let me show you what's in your heart. Ezekiel said, and I will give them one heart. I will put a new spirit within you, and I will take away what? That stony heart. Doesn't that just sound like something that's just, you know, you got major heart problem. Yeah, i got a stony heart, you know. And, and what does he go? Do? He takes it out, and he gives them a heart of flesh, a new heart. That's what salvation is. A new heart is what man needs. We all need that because our hearts are desperately evil, desperately wicked. We're bent toward that. And so we come to this text with that being said, proper understanding of sin. And he says in verse 27, he's already talked about the deed of murder. Now he switches over to adultery. And he says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. Pretty simple teaching. Not a lot of rocket science here. Exodus twenty fourteen basically states this thing. Also in Deuteronomy five eighteen, it's kind of repeated as we looked at last week. Don't commit adultery. I mean, it's very clear. It doesn't say, well, you know, if your spouse is just, you know, whatever, it's okay. No, it doesn't say that. It says absolutely under no conditions is this something that should be done. And it's, it's really condemned as a wicked manifestation of an evil heart. And even in Leviticus chapter 20, uh, I think it's verse 9 or 10 there, it talks about that it was actually a penalty of death (laughs) was given for this. this. This is how serious this act was. And in some countries, they still do that. But the Bible clearly teaches that this deed is condemned by God. We don't have to sit around and go, well, oh, gee, is adultery okay in this circumstance? No, it's never under any condition okay, ever. I mean, it's, it's very clear. Mm-hmm. And so it's not only in the scripture that way, but it's also in their own traditions because they said, because he, he tells them there, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. And so they would say that. They would say, is it right, if you ask the scribes and the Pharisees, hey, is it okay for you guys to commit adultery? And they'd say, absolutely not. God forbids it. They had a proper perspective on it. But their perspective didn't go far enough. It just went to the physical act. They didn't go far enough in their understanding of what God was forbidding here. They admitted it was a serious crime, and it was something that God forbid them to do, but they didn't carry it far enough. Now let's look at this word adultery. Basically, it means unlawful intercourse with the spouse of someone someone else. That's the 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 basic definition of the root word found here as we look at this word adultery. But there's a lot of scholars that say, you know what? It's a little broader than that. It can be a little broader than that. Uh, it's not only that, but it's also the idea of. It's a command not to engage in sexual activity with somebody else's spouse, but it's also kind of a general command against any kind of wrong or illicit sexual behavior. Period. And it's used in, in, in general in some other areas. Um, in, in some sources it's used to seduce or to violate a woman, whether married or unmarried. In other places it's translated to commit harlotry. And so the word has been used to speak of any kind of illicit sexual relationship at all outside the bond of marriage. And so primarily it refers to this sexual relationship that violates a marriage, but it does, the spirit of it kind of goes beyond that, you might say. And so and you say, well, you know, where do you, if you look at verse 28, he even carries it a little further, and he says... Anyone looks on a woman to lust after her, has committed adultery, with her already in his heart. You notice here the woman he speaks of here isn't identified as being married or not. We don't know. And so the context is broad enough to imply that anybody who lusts after a woman has committed adultery in his heart. That's kind of the, the idea. That's where Jesus is trying to go with this. Well, what are the, the consequences? I mean, today, you could almost say there are none, from the world's perspective. It's almost like they, people don't care anymore. I mean, you hear people all the time, you see them once in a while on, on TV programs or whatever, you know, well, yeah, I'm in a relationship with another guy, but, you know, we have an open marriage. Or I mean, it's just crazy. And they don't, they don't even give it a second thought. Um. You know, those people should read Proverbs 5 to 7 before they engage in this sin because it speaks very pointedly about the devastation that it causes in people's lives and in the relationships. It's a sin for fools, basically, it says. Uh, And so if if you stop and you think about it, you just think about, you know, David and the results of his life. Or, or others, Absalom. I mean, all these different people in the Bible. The Bible says that when you commit this sin, you take fire in your bosom. In, in Proverbs six twenty-seven. That doesn't sound like a fun thing to do. I know some of you like hot sauce and all those kind of things, and maybe you'll be eating, you know, chips and dips with hot sauce later. But to literally take fire in your bosom, I don't think that's a, a treat. Okay, it's not meant to be that way. Um, the New Testament um, refers to it you know, in Hebrews 13, 4, it says fornicators and adulterers God will judge. The New Testament reiterates that in 1 Corinthians and 2 Peter and all those verses that I gave you, I think, in your outlines. And it says that fornicators and adulterers won't even enter God's kingdom. And so scripture is pretty clear that this is not a good thing. Um, And it's unfortunate today uh, we have sexual immorality running rampant, in and outside the church, and everybody just kind of goes, "Well, you know, that's the way God created this." And you know, no, that's not the way God created this. Um, whenever sexual union occurs apart from the bond of a of a of a, a monogamous heterosexual marriage, it's a sin against a holy God. Period. And people just don't believe that. They look at that and go, "That's ridiculous." Don't you think we live in a free society and, you know, hey, what's any of your business, what we do in our personal lives? Well, it's not any of my business, but definitely one day God will make it his business. And I'm just trying to spare you some grief when you get there. But in verse 28, he says, Well, whenever you look on a woman to lust after her, if you do that, you've committed adultery already with her in your heart. And I want you to see what it, what, what it's really saying here, because what Jesus is trying to do, he forces this self-righteousness to realize that they really weren't that holy. He's looking at these scribes and Pharisees and saying, okay, you may not have committed the act of adultery, but let me tell you something. I know you are men, and I know enough about a man that understands that, you know what, this is an issue for all men. And basically the Pharisees are standing there, very prideful, very righteous, saying we don't commit that sin adultery, move on to something else. And he's, Jesus is saying, oh, wait a minute, I got something, something to share with you. And Jesus drives the issue right to the heart of the matter, literally. And see, God always wants us to examine the sin of the heart. That's where it begins. That's what breaks the relationship between God and man. It's the sin of the heart. Now, luckily, as believers, you know, we're in Christ. Our sins are forgiven. They're washed away, as we're going to talk about here at communion time. We're, we have the forgiveness of Christ in our life, so we don't have to worry about that, that brokenness in our relationship when we sin. Why? Because our sins are paid for. Why? Because we're turning to a cross. We're not any longer trying to figure it out on our own. But see, outside of Christ, that sin of the heart breaks your relationship that God originally intended between you and him. He wants to have a relationship with you. He wants to be personal. He's not just some God out in outer space somewhere who doesn't care about you. He's very intimate. He knows the hairs that are on your head. He knows the, the day you were born, the color eyes you were had, all that stuff before you were ever even around. He knew all this stuff, who you were going to marry, what your kids' names were. Gonna, he knows every little facet about yourself because he's a very personal God. And the one thing he realizes is that, you know what? Because he is so personal that you have a heart that's not right with me and I want to make it right. I want to give you the opportunity to come to Christ and to repent of your sin, to turn away from your sin and to turn to my son because he he paid the price for your sin. Now look at some terms here in this verse. First of all, Jesus says very clearly, He says, you have heard it said that those of old, you have not commit adultery. But look at verse 28. But I. (laughs) In other words, hey, you've heard this. Now I'm going to give you the real deal. All right? But I. And it's very emphatic in the Greek language. It's not just a, oh, you know, but this. No, no. It's very Emphatic. And, and what Jesus is saying, in contrast, is basically, you know what, you've heard this from your authorities, the people that took God's original law and misinterpreted it and made up their own oral law and then said, well, if you follow A, B, C, and D, you're okay. You've heard all that. Now, you know what, I, I'm here to tell you that I am the new authority on this issue. That's basically what he's saying. You've had your authority in your rabbinical teachings, but now, you know what, I am the authority. That's what he was literally saying in that one little statement, but I, those two words. In fact, it was such a uh, kind of a a slap in the face to them. All right, they couldn't believe it. It, it, At the end, they were really shocked. If you turn over to Matthew chapter 7, verses 28 and 29, look at the response to this. It says, and so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings, and we're going to go through all these in the next couple weeks, that the people were what? Astonished at his teachings, for he taught them as one having what? Authority, not as the scribes. In other words, he wasn't saying, oh, uh, let me confer with these people over here and we'll figure out what this means. No, he came on the scene and he said, no, I'll tell you what it means, because I am the authority on this issue. And that's what blew them out of the water. So first of all, he establishes that, that he is the new authority on these issues. And he wants them to clearly understand that what he's about to say is very important. And then he goes on in, uh, in, in verse uh, 28 there. He says, but I say to you that whosoever looks, whosoever looks, you know, it's not, you know, you're driving down El Camino, guys, and and, you know, a car pulls up alongside of you and you kind of glance over. It's not that. That's not what he's talking about here. Okay, because you see some flowing hair you know, coming out the window or something. What is it with guys and hair? I, I don't know. I mean, you know, I had a rude awakening when I first moved to California. And I was kind of a new Christian and, and the second year I had my car and I remember cruising over to La Jolla. I was going down the freeway. See this car in front of me and got the top down and you know, the blonde hair is blowing in the wind, and I'm thinking, yeah, I'll speed up a little bit here, you know. So I kind of come up alongside this car, and you know, I kind of look over. This dude looks over with his mustache and his beard and just freaked me out. <laughs> I mean, he probably had the most beautiful hair I've ever seen, but it's just kind of like, whoa, what is that? Well, it's not talking just about a glance here. He's talking about the intent. It's not an inadvertent, accidental, anything like that. He's he's talking about something that is purposed in your heart. In other words, you know, you, you not only glance over at this lady, but you follow her for ten blocks, you know, trying to continue to 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 look at her, because it's feeding the lust of your heart. That's what he's talking about here. It's a, pre- a present participle, and it has the idea of this continuing process of looking. You know, we don't get in trouble, guys, if, if, if we just kind of glance. That doesn't necessarily get us in trouble. It's a second look. It's a third look. It's a fourth look. It's, it's just a deadpan stare. You know, I mean, that gets us in trouble. That's just plain wrong. And so he's not talking about a glance here. He's talking about somebody that intends on staring for the purpose. The purpose here is to feed the lust in their heart. Whosoever looks at a woman, whether she's married or not, we don't know to lust for her, has already it's interesting. He's, it says that he's already committed adultery. Jesus doesn't say the one who lusts after a woman commits adultery. At that point. That's not what he's saying. He says it's already happened. (laughs) He's saying that whoever looks on a woman to lust after her. Has already committed adultery. In his heart. Because it's that evil heart. (laughs) Just that wants that. Fulfills that lust. Lust. The sin has already happened in the heart. The adultery is conceived and there, kind of that look is prompted and it continues. It's a continuing gaze at something. And as men, we're we're faced with those issues daily. Daily. I'm not just talking once or twice a day. I'm talking ongoing some of us moment by moment. What passes in front of our eyes affects us. And sometimes those little glances, there's nothing wrong with that, but Satan has a way of taking those little glances and tempting us to want more. And pretty soon it's second glance and third glance and maybe, you know, more and more and your mind starts racing. And pretty soon, you're, you're, you're literally committing adultery in your heart before God. See, lust is a manifestation of an adulterous heart that's seeking an object to fulfill that fantasy. That's what, that's what it is. That's what lust is. When he says here, to lust, it really indicates a purpose here. In other words, it isn't this involuntary glance. It's a purposeful one. It's one that says, hey, you know what? I feel like lusting today. I'm going to go put my eyes on something that will fulfill that lust. And what happens is that heart wants to attach itself to something that will fulfill that lust. And it all happens up here in the mind. And sometimes it gets so bad... With people that, you know, just glance here, glance here, it doesn't, it doesn't fulfill it anymore. So there's a need for more. And pretty soon they're into X-rated movies and they're into pornography and they're into all sorts of things. You know, what's, you know that's just how wicked our hearts are. And what Jesus is trying to say is, don't think that you're above this because you have some self-righteousness that maybe you never committed the act of adultery in your marriage, so you think, that oh, this is all water under the bridge, I don't need to hear this. Jesus really is saying here, emphatically, I say to you that whoever continues looking on a woman for the purpose of lusting gives evidence of already committed adultery in his heart. That's what he's saying. And that's that continued look and so he's saying, once again, hey, the problem's not in the action out here. The problem is in our heart. What are we going to do about it? And you stop and you think of this whole process and how this can just snowball. And I need to say here that being tempted in these areas, that's not sin. You understand? I mean, if you're tempted in these areas, that's not sin. It's, what do you do with the temptation? Satan may tempt us. We may put ourselves in in tempting situations. But the sin only comes in relation to what you do with the temptation. Scripture tells us very clearly what we should do. When we're faced with that temptation, what are we supposed to do, guys? We're supposed to what? What? Run! Flee! Do the old, blah, 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 I don't want to hear any rock away. And see, and, and sometimes women don't understand that. <laughs> because they operate on a whole different level with all this stuff, most women. It's just different for them. But men are very visual, men are very, you know, into all that. And so, from a woman's perspective, you know, you, you, you might be saying, well, you know, this doesn't have anything to do with me. Oh, yes, it does. It has a lot to do with you. Because if you're not understanding how your man is thinking and how men think in general, you, you have the potential to elicit these lustful responses from men who have no intention of that. Just by simply, and I'll say this very bluntly, by the way you dress. You say, well, that's ridiculous. Well, it's not ridiculous. It's not ridiculous. We minister in a church down in Indio, California, down the desert, Palm Springs area, Palm Desert area. And to a pastor, I mean, it's almost, you, you talk to these pastors one after the other, and and. It, you just have these, these issues within the churches down there. And one of them is when summer comes around and the temperature gets up to 115, 120, and people come to church on Sunday with spaghetti straps and, and you know, short, short, shorts and all this stuff, but nobody's willing to deal with it. You don't think that affects the men in that congregation? Because it's, it's what's going on in the eyes. It's what's going on in the head. Someone said this, he who experiences at a first glance this desire and then instead of turning away and withdrawing from sin continues to look in order to retain and increase that impulse, that's when sin is committed. You stop and you think of David walking on the roof, same thing, looking over the side and all of a sudden he sees Bathsheba over there, um, you know, bathing. Probably never thought this would have happened. But instead of turning away and, Going back inside, he continues to look until this heart, this adulterous heart, brings forth this lust and and ultimately ending in the act of adultery and then even murdering an innocent individual. I mean, can you imagine? It's understanding that temptation process. When we're tempted, we're not called to, you know, kind of, you know, I'm going to be a man and I'm just going to resist this. No. That's ridiculous. That's like putting a gun to your head and saying, well, hopefully this won't hurt, I don't think it'll hurt me, and pulling the trigger. It's that silly. If you're being tempted, turn away. Run the other direction. Don't sit there thinking, well, you know, George isn't having a problem with this, or Bob isn't having a problem with this, or Larry isn't having a problem with this, so I think I'll just hang around here, and you know, even though in my mind, man, this is not good for me, I know, no, be a man and step up and say, you know what, I, I, can't, I can't endure this. This is not good for my spiritual well-being and turn away and get out of the situation. That's what a real man would do in that situation. Not just go along with the crowd. In Titus one fifteen, the Bible says, Unto the pure all things are pure, but unto them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure. The saying that says, Sow a thought and reap an act, sow an act and reap a habit. Sow a habit and reap a character. Sow a character and reap a destiny. See, it all starts with what you do with your thoughts. What are you going to sow into your thoughts? So, so important. A person, we have the ability to take something that God has created that's beautiful and turn it into something dirty and disgusting just because of our evil hearts. That's, that's what we do. And it's unfortunate, but that's, that's what happens. That's why the, the pornography industry and all that industry is just, I mean, you know, growing hands over fist. I mean, it's just amazing. And the enemy knows that. And we need to look at that and say, you know what, I, I can't go there. It's not honoring to God. It's not honoring to my wife. It's not honoring to my family. And yet, you know, it seems like, you know, the enemy just turns, cranks up the wheels, even, you know, the the temptations more and more and more. Remember in Job 31, he said, I made a covenant with my eyes. Why then should I think upon a maid if my step has turned out of the way and my heart walks after my eyes and if any blot has cleaved to my hands, Let them sow and let another eat. He's made a covenant with his eyes. That's what we need to do. If we break the covenant with my eyes, not to to look lustfully upon a a woman, then you know what? Let me starve. I mean, basically, that's what he's saying. I I don't want to go down that road. Psalm 119.37 says, Turn away my eyes from beholding vanity. So it's the heart that has to be dealt with because that's where the root of sin is. But it's interesting because he doesn't leave us in this hopeless, helpless situation. He delivers us out of us. Out of it, in verse 29 to 30, he talks about plucking out your eye and cutting your arm off. Lest you want to be cast in the hell and you say, man, what is that about? Well, you know, when you first read that, you say, that is just sick. Because you just said that it's not what's on the outside, but it's what's on the inside. It's the matter of the heart. Now he wants you to pluck your eye out? Do you think blind people can lust? I do. Sure they can. He's not talking about literally plucking out your eye or cutting your arm off, because you're, you, you could still commit sin if that was. He's not talking about that. He's not saying that there's any physical remedy for a heart problem. That would undermine his whole point here. But I think because the eye and the arm were symbols of, you know, the best members, the best facilities that we have. It's very precious to us. I don't know, would you, would you give up an eyeball for a million dollars? I don't think I would. I know I wouldn't. Two million, ten million? No. Why? Because your eyes are precious to you. And what he's saying is sometimes... You've got to pry your, your white knuckles off those things that are precious to you to eliminate the things that are causing these problems in your life. In Matthew 18, there's a similar passage. He says, Woe unto the world because of its offenses, for it, must, uh, for it must needs, be that offenses come. But woe to the man by whom the offenses come. Wherefore, if your hand or your foot offend thee, cut it off. And he goes on there. Well, Jesus is teaching that anything which causes a man to remain in his sin and to kind of feed that and and do that adulterous and evil heart thing, it should be eliminated. Even if you think you'd never even dream of giving that thing up. And sometimes we need to stand up and say, you know what? We need to give people advice like that. Sometimes, you know, I'm leaving my wife, I'm leaving my husband because I just don't love him anymore. Well... That's not acceptable That's not acceptable resolution of the situation. I'm sorry. Because you're, 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 you're sowing something into your life that's deeply offensive to God. And so, the issue here is Jesus is saying, you know what, when you have sin in your life, you have to deal with it radically. I mean, even the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 9, he says, I keep, I beat my body and bring it into subjection. That's the kind of discipline that he he needed in his life. He constantly, it says, he beat his own body to make it do what God wanted it to do. And then there's sections where he says, you know, I don't know why I do what I'm not supposed to be doing, but here I am doing it, and I don't want to do it, but, you know, the thing that I'm supposed to be doing, I'm not doing. And we all deal with that. But Jesus calls here for immediate action that will be effective upon sin. And he diagnoses the problem. He says, "You know what? Whatever your problem is, cut it off, pluck it out, eliminate, it, get rid of it. Whatever it might be that's causing that. If you go to watch a movie, and there's something there that kind of gets the things thinking wrong in your in your own mind and your heart, and you're, you start lusting after whatever on the screen. Get up and walk out. That's what a real man would do." If you're reading things that are kind of bringing up lustful thoughts, throw them in the trash. That's what we need to do. And he knows here that just, you know, cutting your right hand off or plucking out your right eye, that's not going to change the issue of the heart. But what he's saying is you should do whatever you can to kind of avoid these things. Notice that word offend there. Uh, I think it was Michael Card had an album or a song called "Scandalon." That's this word here in the Greek, "scandalon," offend, in verses 29 and 30. It's a a word that literally means you have a trap. You're trying to catch an animal. You need something to eat, and you put kind of a bait in this trap. So when the animal goes in and thinks it's going to get its dinner, it's actually trapped, and it becomes the dinner. It has the same idea. It's, also, it's almost as if Jesus were saying, if your right eye is bait that catches you in this trap where your lust is fulfilled, then, then get rid of it. Deal with it. If your right hand is causing you to be trapped, then you know, cut it off. Do whatever you can. Get rid of it. Whatever in your life is causing you to go down that road, stop it. At the point of origin, right there in your heart. Make a commitment to God. God. You stop and you say, well, could these scribes, these Pharisees, get rid of their sinful hearts? Because that's really what they're, they're standing before Jesus and almost, they're standing there almost naked with their their heart open up going, oh, wow, we see what he's doing. He's exposing us. And he's not saying, well, you need a new heart, so here, just come and, you know, pay this and you do this physical act and this will give you, he doesn't say that. Matter of fact, they, didn't, they, they couldn't do it on their own. And once again, Jesus is giving this impossible standard. Be perfect as your fathers. Well, nobody who can do that. And there's a frustration there that says, you know what, we've tried, we've tried, and maybe you've lived your life and you've tried to be a good person and you've tried to do what God wants and all this stuff, but you've never bowed your knee to Christ. You've never come to him and said, you know what, God, it's not about me, it's about you and you're holy and I'm not and there's no way I'm going to make myself holy by jumping through all these hoops. It's not going to happen. I'll jump, jump through hoops right straight to hell. That's what your word says. Because I can't deal with sin on my own. And we don't know how to get deliverance from hell. And so we have to turn to somebody that can show us. And that's God. That's why Christ came to die. Because we couldn't pay for our own sin. He needed, God needed someone to come down and pay the penalty for our sin. That's why he gave his son, Jesus Christ, who came down and willingly gave up his life on a cross. He was beaten and, and all sorts of things happened to him during that time. But the main thing he did was he was willing to give up his life for ours. And that's exactly what he offers. God offers a new heart, a heart in every thought renewed and filled with love, perfect, right, pure, good. And he kind of forces them into that corner and says, you know what, you can't do this on your own. And that's exactly where God can speak to someone's heart and that's exactly where God can save them. Just like the guy in the corner that stretched out his arms and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I don't know what else to do. I'm tired of playing the game with you. And for Christians, we don't have to fall prey to all this lust and adultery and all this stuff that's going on in the world. We don't have to. We have a way out. God has provided a way out for us. None of us are tempted beyond what we can bear, the word of God says, but he's gracious and he provides a way out. But it's the wickedness of our own heart that sometimes, you know what? We don't take the way out. Because we just want a little more. And that grieves the heart of God. Praise God for his grace. If it wasn't for God's grace, we would all be smitten. We'd all be just wiped out. But we can know victory over those sins that constantly kind of harass us if we know Christ. If you don't know Christ, you're never going to get anything that will help you with that. It's just unfortunate. The answers are in Christ and Christ alone. I want to leave you with a song. and We've played this before. And, and, and I just love the words to this song. Because for men, it, it speaks something right to our hearts. And I think there's not a man in this building today that won't identify with what's going on. But to say something a little further... Women may not deal with this, some do, but not to the extent that men do. But let me help you understand that in, in some ways the responsibility is equal. As women, God calls you to to kind of portray yourselves in a way that honors God and doesn't allow the, these kind of things to... Um, you don't come across a way that would, would solicit a glance or a lustful stare. Now, does that mean that, you know, you've you got to walk around in head-to-toe coverings and all that stuff? No, I'm not saying that. But I'm saying just use some common sense. Use some basic common sense when you're dressing. When you're, you know, you know I mean, it's just something that would honor God? Would I dress this way if Jesus were standing here? I mean, it's so important. I can't, I can't drive home how important it is. Um, for that responsibility, where it lies, and that doesn't, you know, carry the guy's responsibility. That, that's 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 his issue, but uh, we we have to understand that, and it's important that we, you know, we realize that. But let's listen to the song, and I just pray that you'd be, just maybe sit there and bow your head, close your eyes, whatever you want to do. But just listen to the words of the song because they're they're so. Um, They kind of pertain to exactly, in a way, what we're talking about today. It's just that one glance that goes off base that could cause just the downfall of an entire relationship, an entire family, and uh, we just need to guard our, our hearts in that way.